This is Dr. Michael Bricky with Ageless Lifestyles, cutting-edge thinking for being youthful at every age. On each program, I interview experts on what it takes to live longer, healthier, and happier. We have fire drills because in an emergency, we need to act quickly and may not think quickly. A vital skill for living a long, healthy life is knowing what to do in an emergency. The rubber-meets-the-road experts on emergencies are ambulance drivers and firefighters. Today's expert, Rod Brohard, has done both and now teaches how. He is the author of Life's Little Emergencies. Rod, welcome. Thank you for having me. I want to talk about logistics because you're the only person I've found that talks and writes about the logistics of getting emergency help. One of the things you say is, if you have a choice between a landline and a cell phone, always use the landline. Absolutely. The technology that has brought us cell phones that are absolutely ubiquitous today has moved so quickly that the municipalities that are out there that are supposed to be answering these phone calls haven't really kept up with the technology that the cell phone companies were able to do. The government has tried to make the cell phone companies help them along the way, but the reality is that when you call 911 on a cell phone, it kind of depends on where you live and where your local emergency services are. Some municipalities don't have all of the technology necessary to figure out where you are the same way that 99% of the country is able to figure out where you are when you call from a landline. When you call from a landline, there is a depository of information that is in in Colorado, as a matter of fact. I don't know why it is there, but large computer database that knows where every person, every landline that is registered knows where they are, who pays for that phone service, who is living in that home. So when you pick up your house phone and you call 911, the computers at the 911 center will go to that depository, tell it what line it's talking to, and ask where that person is and who that person is. So they will have what they call the splash that will pop up, and the splash will say, this is John Smith, and he's at 123 Main Street. And if you never say a word on that landline, they will still know at least who lives there, at least who pays the bill anyhow, and they will know what address you're calling from. And that's the important thing. But if you do the same thing from a cell phone, it depends on your municipality, what they're capable of doing. It also depends on the cell phone that you're calling from, what it's capable of telling them. Older cell phones may not have the GPS built in that all new cell phones are required to have by law. And on the GPS, a lot of times people turn it off to save the battery, but if you're if you do have to call 911 from a cell phone, you'd want to turn on the GPS. You would want to turn on the GPS, and, and it is possible to turn it off. By default, most of the new phones that, well, all new phones that are sold now, by default, the GPS is at least turned on when you call 911. So just by dialing 911, it instantly turns on the, the GPS. Oh, that is so cool. 
Yeah, if you are using your phone and you don't want everybody else to know where you're where you are, then you can turn that function off and that does save the battery. But in the case of find, using GPS to find out where folks are, it's latitude and longitude coordinates and then a computer has to decide what address that is. So the idea of using a cell phone, you call from a cell phone, and if you've ever used a GPS to drive around in your car, you know sometimes they get a little mixed up. For whatever reason, the signal thinks that you're a couple streets over or or even a 100 yards in the wrong direction, and now the GPS thinks that you are in the house next door. And any delay could mean the difference. And bad weather could mess up system, too. Exactly. The pendants that people wear where they just press a button and it calls 911, are some of them better than others? Yeah, but I'm not convinced yet on what's the best option. I think it really depends on your own needs and your own ability to troubleshoot the technology. There are basically two different styles. One type of the pendant uses a, a subscription service. So when you, you hit the button and the box notifies somebody who's sitting in a room much like a, a dispatch center and that person is able to talk to you, they're able to ascertain what you need. So that person may be able to decide is this something that needs 911 right now? Is this, on the other hand, something that instead of calling 911 right away, we can go to the list of numbers that you've provided and they can say, okay, so uh, we're not going to dial 911 right now. We're, we're instead, we're going to call your neighbor and have your neighbor come over because this isn't a medical emergency. This is a, I, I'm down on the floor. I'm not injured. I just can't get up. Can you call my neighbor to come and give mm-hmm. me a hand? And that's all pre-set up at that point. Your neighbor expects to occasionally get a phone call. The service has your neighbor's phone number. You can talk to the attendant, operator, whatever you want to call them, and, and ask for specifically, don't dial 911 for me, call the neighbor. On the other hand, there are other versions that are automated. So when you hit the button, it's not a service, so you don't have to pay monthly for it, but the machine itself, with a recorded message, will begin dialing numbers. So it'll dial number, you know, phone number number one and play the recorded message. I've seen one that will dial phone number number one, and when they answer, it'll play the recorded message, and it will let them talk to you through the machine. Mm-hmm. That works great as long as you're close enough to the machine that they can hear you. <laughs> so if you have a small apartment, <laughs> little studio apartment, that's a perfect machine. But for a home, you know, in my home, if I was, if I had the machine up in the bedroom with two stories, there's no way anybody would hear me if I was downstairs. So are these all plugged into the wall or do we have to worry about batteries running out? All of these are plugged into the wall. In, in every version that I've looked at, they have battery backup. far as I've found so far, with the exception of one company, all of them require a landline telephone. 
So if you're one of the hipsters who's decided to ditch the landline telephone for the cell phone, for the reasons I already gave you, I mm-hmm. suggest not, not doing that. But if you want a medical alert machine, you're going to probably need to get a landline telephone as well. The other problem with landline telephone machines is if you happen to have the phone off the hook when you need the machine to make the call, some of them are not capable of doing that. There is a device that you can have put on your phone that will allow the machine to interrupt whatever phone call might be going on, hang up the phone, get a dial tone, and call out. Amazing. You said there have been a few cases of strangulation from the pendants. Is that a concern? You know, sometimes I think we get almost hypersensitive to the concerns of the stuff that we are asking folks to use. Here's the example I'm giving. We have a patient who has a pendant around the neck, and the pendant gets caught. The person gets strangulated because the pendant is caught on something. That happens once or twice of the, you know, thousands of folks that have these things around their neck. I would consider that a freak accident. However, once the information gets out there, then the companies are a little worried about having folks wear something around their neck. So then the idea was, well, we'll put it on their wrist. Then from one company's example, they had another freak accident, which was essentially a medical emergency, where because they were wearing it on their wrist, in that case, it was the medical emergency was a stroke, and so they couldn't move the other side of their body. They weren't able to push the button because... They only had the use of mm-hmm. one side and not the other, and the, the wrist pendant was on, I guess, the side that they couldn't move. So having a device like this to help you vastly outweighs any crazy risk that might come with having either one around your neck, which they to get away with the, the strangulation thing, some of them have breakaway magnets on the pendant. Mm-hmm. So that if if you pulled on it hard enough, it would come off. The problem, of course, with that is it may come off when you actually need it in a fall. <laughs> and then you can't reach it, <laughs> and the whole point of buying the thing is kind of useless. I suggest the pendant around the neck or the one on your wrist. It doesn't really matter. It's having that thing available for you at the time and whatever works for you and whatever makes you comfortable. For somebody who is having some, you know, mild to moderate dementia, it's probably good for somebody to check the system monthly or so to make sure that it didn't get unplugged or something else mess up the system. Most of the systems have built-in checks that are usually weekly, as a matter of fact. In some cases, we'll actually get 911 calls from the systems that do the weekly checks and nobody answers. If you're active and you're traveling, you need to make sure that part of your checklist for heading out of town is to tell the folks that administer your machine, if you've got one, because we get a lot of those. We get a lot of folks that are just happen to not be home. The machine goes through the, the usual weekly or, or I don't think that anybody's doing it daily anymore, although we used to have when some of the services would do daily checks, we would have folks who, you know, had in their routine that they happened to be out doing a walk or they would, 
you know, have the dogs outside at the time when the machine would check every day and we would end up getting 911 calls to that house for a week straight. We usually got those taken care of pretty quickly, but it's important to make sure that they know your routines, that they know your travel plans if you plan to be gone. If you're using the machines that don't have a service, it's important that somebody makes sure that the thing is working and and extremely important that somebody makes sure that the information in the machine is updated. So if the machine itself is going to be making the phone calls, it, it's only going to know the numbers that you put in. Mm-hmm. So you can't have a typo. You can't have it's not a good idea to put the numbers in and five years later expect that all the numbers will be the same. And it's also never a good idea to have the machine call 911 as the first number. Okay. We know that you shouldn't drive to the emergency room if you're having a medical emergency yourself. Is it ever appropriate for someone else to drive you to the emergency room as opposed to waiting for an ambulance? It it is, and I would say that that kind of depends on where you live. I'm in a somewhat rural community. My house, I live in in the largest city that's in our county, and we have about about 250,000 that live here, fairly metropolitan. Ambulance gets here within seven and a half minutes. The ambulances are going to transport no more than five or ten minutes at the absolute tops to get you to a hospital, and you're going to get treatment while you're on your way. That works beautifully. There are some communities up in the foothills near me where an ambulance may take 45 minutes to get there. You might be better off having someone drive you down the hill. Mm-hmm. It may be easier to actually get if they can get you in the car and drive you down it might be better to have someone drive you the half an hour to the hospital than it is to wait the half an hour for the ambulance to get there just to turn around and have the ambulance transport you another half an hour back to the hospital so it really depends on your own location and your own situation that being said there are times when an ambulance is absolutely necessary. If someone collapses, and especially if they collapse and we're talking cardiac arrest and CPR needs to be performed, that's not somebody that should be drug into the car and driven because during that portion of them being in the car and being driven, nobody's doing CPR, and it's that constant resuscitation that needs to happen if they're going to survive the encounter. So in certain cases, it's absolutely critical that you dial 911. This is just a curiosity question. When do family members go in the ambulance with somebody, and when is it not an option or inappropriate? You know, that is the age-old question for paramedics. In general... I would say that most services leave it up to the ambulance crew. Family members who are calm and collected are much more likely to be placed in the ambulance. As you imagine, in the ambulance, if you're going to ride in with the crew, we typically will put you up front. So you'll ride as a passenger in the front seat. In that case, family members who are 
excitable or agitated put the entire crew at risk if we are afraid that they're going to interfere with the driving. On the other hand, somebody who's calm and collected and particularly if there's a need, if you can't take yourself to the hospital, we'll have in, in the case of our, some of our senior patients will get on the scene and the person who is the medical emergency is the only one who drives. So the other family member will be home alone with no mobility, no ability to actually get out of the house and, mm-hmm. and get their own help or whatever the case is. So it's almost imperative that we put that person in the passenger seat and bring them along to the hospital for their own good as much as for the patient's comfort or the ability of them to to just you know be with the patient at the hospital. I have no way to tell you who's going to allow you to ride and who's not. I can tell you that if if indeed we are going to be going to the hospital with lights and sirens, that puts everyone, the crew, any passengers, and the patient at an exponentially greater risk. It's much more dangerous to drive with lights and sirens. And so most services tend to discourage family members from going in the ambulance when we're going to be rolling with the lights and sirens going. What's the maximum number, say, family members who could fit in a typical ambulance? The maximum number of family members who the crew is likely to allow to go is one. Uh, If we could, just talking about how many people you could fit in an ambulance, you could fit, crew is usually a crew of two, sometimes more, but usually a crew of two plus the patient. And there's usually room for one, two, three, four more people. So you could conceivably stuff seven people in an ambulance. There are seat belts for that many in most ambulances. However, uh, there's not a lot of work you can get done when you have seven people stuffed in there. Mm-hmm. Ideally, when the EMS arrives, we would hand you bunch of papers that list all the pills and the medical history and the insurance cards and relatives phone numbers and physician phone numbers and allergies and maybe even whether we drink too much or use street drugs. In reality, we're usually not that well organized. What does the EMS do to try to gather that information? We are master detectives. You don't plan for an emergency for the most part. I'm asking folks to do just that, but most people don't. So you walk in, there are certain routines that are kind of expected. So I have an idea that I can go look in on the bathroom counter or on the nightstand next to the bed or uh, in the kitchen, and I'm likely to find all the medications in one of those three places. So we will often, somebody from the crew, and the crew of an ambulance is usually joined by some sort of first responder. In my hometown, where I work, our ambulance will show up and there will be two of us. If I'm training somebody, there might be three of us. Plus, there's going to be a fire crew there, and the fire crew will have at least three people. So, we got a team at that point. And the paramedic, in our case, there's usually only one paramedic, and the rest of the team are trained EMTs, which is a step before paramedic. So the paramedic will stay with the patient and interview the patient and ask all the questions and do the assessment. And somebody from the team will go on a 
a scavenger hunt and see what they can find as far as medications go and gather those up. If there's a family member there, we'll ask the family member, can you gather all the medications up for us so that we can see them? We really hope that those medications are still in the bottles with the labels on them so that we can see what's going on. If somebody hands us a piece of paper with everything written out on it and we can see that it's fairly comprehensive, then we'll take that piece of paper and we love that. Now we have everything that we absolutely need. Actually, let me correct myself. We have everything that we would actually want. We don't need anything. We can get through the entire medical assessment to the level that it takes to treat almost all of the really serious life-threatening things that we run into. We have all of the ability to assess those and treat them without knowing a thing about you. It does, however, make it much better if we know as much as we can. So if you can hand us something, that's great. If you don't, we go looking for that stuff on our own, and we do it through our own kind of routine scavenger hunt. And some of the things you said for people who are organized, particularly if it's somebody with a serious medical history or or elderly, is include the DNR documents, the POA power of attorney documents, the healthcare power of attorney documents, and that will grease the path at the hospital. That absolutely helps out at the hospital, more so than with us. However, I love the patients that have a folder. So I walk in the door and we are asking our questions and somebody walks in and they have a little pocket folder and you open that thing up and on the left side is a piece of paper with all that information that we talked about. What I call in the book the history of me, my name, my birthday, my medical conditions, my medications, my allergies. People forget that, but allergies are extremely important. My doctor's name, my insurance company, if you want that information on there. The only thing I ask people not to put, because even though you'll be asked every single time you go to the doctor, nobody really needs it. Don't put your social security number on there. You're going to write down your name. You're going to write down your birthday. Two vital pieces of information that we will use to identify you every single time. If that same piece of paper has your name, your birthday, and your social security number, and you lose it, you're asking for trouble. So I suggest never put your Social Security number down. They can go through the entire process, especially if they have your insurance card information. They can go through the entire process without ever knowing your Social Security number. And there are actually some companies out there now that are not requiring any kind of Social Security information. They're using your name, your birthday, and your your insurance information as your identification, which I, I like that a lot better. Uh, so they'll hand us this folder, and the folder has on one side, it has your history of me. On the other side, it has all of the pertinent documentation. In some cases, if you have something that is a little more on the rare side as far as medical conditions go, print out whatever it says on WebMD or I write for uh, about.com. Go on to about.com, find that particular condition, print out the page that is the general facts so that if I walk into your home and I'm a paramedic who deals with cardiac arrest and I deal with strokes and I deal with trauma and I walk in and you happen to have something I have not yet heard of, 
print out the fact sheet so that I can glance through it and I understand. And if there's something specific to emergencies that's well known with whatever condition that is, put it front and center so that I know that you're going to behave, your body will behave in a way that I'm not expecting. That's important for me. So having that information in there is great. And then the other, the, the stuff that you talk about, DNRs, especially the more, the more legal, durable power stuff, that comes into play in the hospital setting. And that stuff needs to go with you to the hospital. If you put it in that folder, it's all coming with us. We're going to hand it over to the hospital crew. The emergency room folks will know where I live. And in many hospitals around the country, there are what are known as patient advocates that work in the emergency room. They'll be given this whole folder, and they are part legal help, part phone call makers, and part social worker. And these folks will call your friends and family that you ask them to call. They will maintain all of these records for you so that everybody who touches you during your treatment is aware of your expectations, and that's important. And one of the things I'm big on is if you get a lab test, get a copy of it. If you get a cardiogram, get a copy of it. And if you have serious health problems, put that in the packet too so they have a baseline. Absolutely. The only thing that I would suggest with with all that is that goes in the back of the packet. Mm-hmm. What has to be front and center is the the simple information, and so I, somebody needs to write down the absolute basics, the conditions that you take medication for every day, the conditions that you, if you have to make a lifestyle change for this and it's a chronic condition, I want to know about it. So if you have to eat a certain way because you have borderline diabetes, I want to know that you have borderline diabetes. It's something, and I, t- and I actually talk about this in the book, it's something that we kind of giggle about in EMS. I'll ask, do you have any medical problems? Well, no. Okay, well, do you take any medications? Well, well, yeah, I take lisinopril, and, and I take glucophage, and I I have some medication to lower my cholesterol. But I thought you didn't have any medical problems. Well, I don't. As long as I take all these, I'm fine. <laughs> well, that means that your body's going to react differently to some of the treatment I may do for you. So it's really important that we know the diagnosis that led to needing to take these medications, as well as the medications themselves and what you're taking and if you are allergic to anything. We're talking with Rod Brohard, and the book that Rod mentioned is Life's Little Emergency. It's a softback, only $16.95. I've been focusing on the logistics. Most of the book is actually about how to handle strokes and heart attacks and heat strokes and all the other emergencies that come up. A very comprehensive guide. Your website is rodbrohard.com, R-O-D-B-R-O-U-H-A-R-D. Again, that's R-O-D-B-R-O-U-H-A-R-D.com. And that has information about the book and your blog and some other things. Yes. My website has information about all the places that you can get some advice from me. The book is, like you said, Life's Little Emergencies. And with any luck, this will be a series. I chose to start with C. 
senior crowd mostly for a couple of reasons. One of those is that this is a group that still likes to buy books, but with the boomer generation, they're also pretty computer savvy. So I've been writing, I mentioned about.com, and I've been writing for about.com for for five years, and a lot of what comes in the book is stuff that I've covered there at about.com, and, and on my personal website, I have links to both. So you, know, you can follow that to the about.com site where I cover all first aid stuff, and there are there's a blog there, but there are also evergreen articles that give all kinds of advice for different things, stuff that I didn't even include in Life's Little Emergencies. However, Life's Little Emergencies was focused really on seniors. There is information in there for... Well, the subtitle says, Handbook for Active, Independent Seniors and Caregivers. So yeah, on my on the website are uh, links to Life's Little Emergencies and about.com. And Life's Little Emergencies, this particular edition, uh, you're right, is uh, focused on seniors, but it's... it's intended to be, as the uh, other header said, a comprehensive guide. The idea is that you can have this thing in your house, and it's a go-to guide for certain things. A caveat to that, though, I have information in there on CPR, and I have information in there on the Heimlich Maneuver. In no way, shape, or form should a book on your bookshelf supplement or it should supplement, it should not replace going and getting the training. Mm-hmm. There's nothing out there that replaces taking a class on first aid, going and taking a class especially on CPR and and the Heimlich maneuver and choking for infants and so on. This is this is information that everybody should practice or information everyone should learn and skills that everyone should practice. Because you just don't get what you need from a book. It's the information is there, and we have pictures to help illustrate each step. However, you got to practice these things if you want to do it well. Mm-hmm. But at least it's there in the book. If you haven't taken the class, you can open up to that page, and and it'll walk you through what to do. It's a shame that they don't teach this in high school, both to for them, the students to have the skills, but also to develop the habit of this is something I need to, to know and periodically update. It is taught in some, but I agree with you. I wish that it was a, a little bit more of a cultural thing, that it was just something everybody should know. That's a challenge on our side, on the EMS side, to get the public a little bit better prepared and a little bit more self-sufficient. I think over the years, and it's interesting because you know the book is really aimed mostly at boomers, and this is a group that tended to be a little bit more self-sufficient. It is the population that's over 60 that I run into that are not calling the ambulance very often. These are the folks that don't call when they need to. These are the folks that tend to take care of it themselves kind of thing. But yet nobody has really encouraged or made the culture that they want to take the classes and get the training that way. The younger folks that we run into in the ambulance all the time, they will 
call 911 for everything. They they kind of <laughs> lean on 911 a little too much, and those are the folks that need to to learn to be a little bit more self-sufficient. But I would love for the boomer generation to take that tendency to be self-sufficient, which which is wonderful, and apply it to a little bit of medical training, just the CPR stuff and the the choking stuff, the things that absolutely need to be handled right now and really can't wait for you to get the ambulance there. Interesting that the over 70, they're, they tend to, and this is a gross generalization, be very acquiescent to doctors, and yet you say they are reluctant to call 911. Very reluctant, actually. They're very reluctant to call 911. You know, having the book, and somebody will ask me to sign it, and that will encourage a conversation. And we'll be talking about their experiences with 911 or their experiences with life-threatening emergencies. And the <laughs> descriptions that I'm told of people having fainting where they pass out, sometimes even with a little seizure activity. And because it resolves quickly, they say, well, yeah, it happened, but but it's gone now, so we don't need to call 911. It's almost as if it's... The roof's not leaking. Eh? <laughs> exactly. It, the rain stopped, so I guess we're good. <laughs> a couple more logistic questions. You can go to a CVS and get one of the little medical alert bracelets saying, I'm a diabetic. I assume that helps a lot? Those are helpful, I would say. My biggest suggestion is to stay as low-tech as possible. My absolute hands-down favorite company, and uh, disclaimer here, the headquarters for these guys is in our county. <laughs> but And maybe because of that, we've actually had uh, Medical Alert as the company, and we've actually had Medical Alert longer than anyone else because, I mean, it started here in the, in the town next door. But the concept is brilliant. It's a description that is in as few words as possible that tells us what your medical condition is, your chief medical condition, or maybe maybe two or three medical conditions might be on there. If you're taking a, a, a dangerous medication such as Coumadin that thins your blood mm-hmm. and keeps you from being able to clot, that information might be on there. If you have a life-threatening allergy to something, that information might be on there. But it's really just the... It's boiled down to the absolute most important thing is written on the bracelet. In the case of Medical Alert, and, and I'll pick on them for a moment because I love the way their system works. In the case of Medical Alert, they have a phone number on there. And the phone number actually allows us to call and talk to a live person on the other side who has access to your information through a database. And we give your, on that bracelet next to the phone number, and, that, and each bracelet has the phone number, so we don't even have to remember it. And on the, the bracelet next to the phone number is a patient identification number. And it's 10 or 11 digits long, something like that, I can't remember. And the, the identification number, we give that to the operator who answers the phone. They actually employ nurses on those phone lines so that we're speaking the same language. It allows us then to ask in very intelligent questions that the nurses can not only regurgitate the information that's in the database, but then we, we can ask questions of that information in our own kind of personal medical language that we use between each other. 
they then give us whatever's in the database, we can make that phone call. We can take you to the hospital where the hospital crew, I remember I mentioned that there's a patient advocate, and that patient mm-hmm. advocate in the emergency room may be the person who makes that phone call or maybe the nurse that's taking care of you. And they will get all kinds of information. If you're in a hospital, the service will fax the entire chart to the hospital for you. So when you talk about having copies of your labs and copies of your EKG strips, these are things that you can upload to their database through the Internet. And now it's available in a way that can be transferred by email, can be transferred by fax as low-tech or as high-tech as the hospital you get transported to is capable of communicating with MedicAlert. Any way that they're capable of communicating, MedicAlert is ready to communicate with them. It's a service that never goes away. So, and, and I found this interesting. I did a, an article on them a while back, and I found out that if you, if you stop paying for the service, what wherever you were when you stopped paying, whatever information was in the database will live there forever. Hmm. And uh, if you're still wearing the bracelet and somebody calls in and gets your information, they will say, okay, the last update was in 1999. However, this is what we have on file. And they will give the information with the caveat that, you know, this is not an active subscriber and they're not currently keeping the information up to date. However, this is what we have. So in our our high-tech era, Google tried to set up a system where you could upload your health information and give people the password and the hospital could download it or something, and they gave up on it. Uh, some of the health plans have, have done that, and I, it doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Maybe a nice solution would be if the health insurance companies automatically subscribed you to MedicAlert or something like that. I think if the system that they're using starts with a very low-tech approach, then we're on the right track. I have a computer in my ambulance these days that didn't used to, and one of the things that has come out are these little USB drives mm-hmm. that you can plug into the the computer. There's really not in a, a service out there, if they're smart, it's going to let the USB ports upload information from a USB drive. That's that's just allowing a virus onto your computer. And the problem is then for the patients who are carrying these things that expect us to be able to utilize them, there's no way for me to get that information off, even though I have a computer, even though I walk into your house and I've got a computer that I'm carrying, that computer's not going to let me plug that USB drive in and download what's on it. Mm. It's completely useless to me. If you have a piece of paper, however, with your stuff written on it, I can read that, no computer necessary. So I can pull that piece of paper and and there we go. I've got what I need. If you have a bracelet and all I need to do is make a phone call, I have a cell phone and I can make a phone call. So I can call Medical Alert and I can get the information from them. If I don't make the phone call and we just transport you to the hospital and we say they have a Medical Alert bracelet on and somebody at the hospital makes that phone call, Medical Alert can fax the information over and we can read it at our leisure. If they want to email it, that's an option. They can email the information over and the hospital can print it out or attach it to your electronic chart. So there are ways to incorporate technology, but it should always start with the most low-tech option 
that we can do. Because at the end of the day, if all I have are my own eyeballs, then I can do something with a bracelet that has stamped on there that you happen to be diabetic. That's that's kind of important to me. It's even more important if I find out that you're allergic to latex, or even more important if I find out that you're taking Coumadin. And if you have a cut, it's not going to stop bleeding. These are things that I need to know that I'm not going to know by looking at you. Even the diabetic information today is not as important as it was when I was younger. That was medical alert's big selling point. Was that it seemed like the only people who carried these medical alert or wore these medical alert bracelets were diabetics, <laughs> because you would look at this bracelet. Oh, diabetic! They need sugar. That's why they. That's you know that's why they're confused or or you know whatever the case is. But today I have a glucometer in my bag, so I'm going to I'm going to check your sugar as a matter of care, no matter who you are. And we discover sometimes that folks who don't even know that they have a problem might be a little low on sugar, and and we'll correct that as a matter of course. So the diabetic part isn't even as important as as it used to be, but that used to be their big selling point. Now today I'm much more interested in knowing, do you have any allergies? Am, am I going to walk up with a pair of latex gloves on and touch you, and in 15 minutes later, you'll be an anaphylaxis? That's important for me to know. One other logistic question. When do you go to the nearest hospital, and when do you go somewhere else? That depends on the system that you work in. What it means for the patients, it depends on where you live. Generally, Everybody wants the system to work the smoothest, and the smoothest is that you can go to the hospital of your choice, which usually means you go to the hospital your insurance company tells you you have to go to, and then all bills get paid as they're supposed to, which makes the hospital happy, clearly. It also makes the, the patient happy that the insurance they've been paying for actually worked. If it's life-threatening, however, there are situations where Seconds do literally count, and we will go to the closest appropriate hospital. Sometimes it's what's going on. There are stroke centers now that do incredible work with stopping the progression of a stroke and even reversing some of the damage. If I have five hospitals in my city and only one of them is a stroke center and it's on the other side of town, you really want me when I pick you up, to drive you past the other four hospitals and get you to that stroke center. The same with, uh, we call them STEMI centers, which is a uh, medical vernacular for, for mm-hmm. a certain type of heart attack. And if we arrive at your home and we do the diagnostic that shows us that you're having that certain type of heart attack, you want me to take you to one of those centers. And they start a stopwatch when you walk in the door and that stopwatch is clicking over their head the whole time. They do everything they can to prep you and get you into the cardiac cath lab as fast as they can. And it's it's part game, really. I mean, it's almost a competition with themselves to get you the treatment, the appropriate treatment, as fast as they can. And it's a condition of being a center in the first place, that they have a minimum that they have to get you there in a certain amount of time. Well, I had images of the James Bond uh, rushing to to turn off the bomb. (laughs) Very, very close, as a matter of fact. Very close. And, you know, the emergency rooms will walk around with a bit of pride that they, you know, they, they call it the device that they put in a cath lab actually slides into your coronary arteries 
backwards up your venous system in it. And the device that has a little balloon on the end that opens up your arteries and allows blood to start flowing again. The, the mm-hmm. time that they talk about is emergency room door to balloon insertion. So they call it door to balloon time. And so everybody is looking for the best door to balloon time. So we'll, you know, we'll hear, you know, we had a 35 minute door to balloon time and it's a team effort. I mean, it requires, the ambulance crew to be on top of it and the ambulance crew to do all the diagnostics necessary, present that information in a concise way, get the patient to the right hospital in the first place. The hospital crew has their own you know, process as long as we give them a heads up before we get there that they are standing and that they literally will be gloved up, gowned up, masked up, standing by the side uh, of the bed as a team waiting for us to walk in. So let's talk about what to actually do. A common problem is that you have a band who experiences chest pain and there's a big temptation to say it's nothing that'll go away. How does uh, how does somebody decide whether to, to call 911 for something like chest pain? If you're having chest pain, there are certain things that should increase your concern. If you're having chest pain that feels like pressure, if you're having chest pain that doesn't seem to change when you move, change position, press on your chest, it doesn't make it better, nor does it make it worse. It just doesn't. It seems deeper than that. If you're having chest pain that the same pain or discomfort is traveling to your shoulders or down your arm especially on the left side, but it doesn't have to be, um, or up into your neck. Those are the danger signs. And that's the, the pain that needs a 911 call right now. And that's the pain you should never try to drive yourself to the hospital with. And that's the pain you should never take to your doctor's office and expect your doctor to handle it. Those are the pains that need a 911 call. So when you make that 911 call, would you also encourage them to take some aspirin and nitro? Or If you have a prescription for nitroglycerin, and, and I actually run into this fairly often, if you have a prescription for, for nitroglycerin, this is the pain that you were prescribed your nitroglycerin for. There are folks who sometimes don't realize that, and maybe you had a tinge or or maybe you had something that, you weren't sure about your your physician prescribed nitroglycerin and said if you if you have chest pain go ahead and take this but you don't like the feeling that nitro gives you so you you tend to not want to take it this is that moment this is what you got it for it's that pressure pain that doesn't seem to get any worse or better when you press on it doesn't seem to get any worse or better when you move around it's this discomfort that just won't go away that's what your nitro's for and and if I understand right about nitro, it's one of the few medications that once you open it, it's only good for several months yeah. and loses its potency. So you want to get a new bottle if one's been around for a while. Yeah, once you've cracked the seal on those things and you've introduced air into the bottle, you know, nitroglycerin is it's a volatile substance. They make dynamite out of this stuff. So it breaks down very quickly. So once you've introduced light, once you've introduced air, the nitroglycerin begins to change chemically and yeah you're right probably six eight months after a bottle has been opened especially if it's opened regularly then that bottle is probably going to lose a 
significant amount of its potency, and you're going to want to replace it. On the shelf, unopened, in a house away from direct sunlight, uh, nitroglycerin has a I'm not sure off the top of my head, but I want to say it's an 18-month or two-year-long shelf life. But that's unopened. And once you crack Mm. open that bottle, you increase the deterioration of of the drug itself. And so it it loses its potency rather quickly. So physically, is there anything else we should do for this man while we're waiting for the EMS? The aspirin idea is is wonderful. 324, or I say it that way because of that. It's 325 milligrams, but you want to chew the aspirin. So, you know, kind of funny when we were kids, there were baby aspirins, which we now know are not a good idea. You never give baby aspirin to a baby. That's a bad idea. Uh, (laughs) But those quote-unquote baby aspirin are back now, and they're back for us so that we can chew on them uh, in case of an emergency. So a baby aspirin is 81 milligrams. So Four of those is 324 milligrams, almost exactly a 325 milligram typical strength aspirin. So you would want to to chew four of those baby aspirin. The chewing part is important. You want to mash that stuff up and start it absorbing quickly. Taking a whole pill like you would take if you had a headache takes too long for it to break down. And even if you actually take a whole pill, and you call 911, it's likely that the 911 operator, what we call the 911 call taker, may suggest to you to take another one and this time chew it up. Mm-hmm. Because they, that, that's an important part of it. So we want to chew up four of the baby aspirin or one regular strength 325 milligram aspirin. Chew it up, swallow it. Yes, it may upset your stomach, but we're not going to worry about that right now. And, uh, a nitroglycerin, if you have a prescription for nitroglycerin, if you don't have a prescription for nitroglycerin but somebody else in your house does, don't share. We don't know how it's going to affect you yet. Mm-hmm. If your prescription, great, go ahead and take one. Nitroglycerin is a pill about the size of a baby aspirin, and that nitroglycerin pill needs to go under your tongue and wait. It will dissolve. If your mouth is dry, it'll take longer, but it will dissolve under your tongue. It tastes bitter. Some people say it burns a little bit. It's not a comfortable medication to take, but that's where it needs to stay. If you swallow nitroglycerin, your stomach acids will render the medication useless before you're able to absorb it. So you have to put it under your tongue and let it absorb that way. I specifically mentioned men because women often have more subtle heart attack symptoms. Anything that women should know about when to call 911 for a possible heart attack? Women, you know, it's it's hard because the research on how women present with their heart attacks is relatively new, and and the evidence out there to help us determine what Jane Doe perceives as a heart attack, that information really doesn't exist yet. It's It's kind of shadowy right now. We're not really sure. So one thing that I've seen just... Anecdotally, in my own experience, is that women perceive the chest pressure differently than men do. And I hope no one takes offense to this, but it's more emotional for women than it is for men. So the descriptions that I'll get are, I felt like I was suffocating. I felt that I couldn't breathe. 
I felt that I couldn't take a breath in. And those are the same thing. They're describing the same squeezing or pressure feeling that men get, but they perceive it differently. So the women will will perceive it as, as a suffocating feeling rather than a pain. And women are way tougher than men. They absolutely, hands down, I've, I'm sold on that. Women can handle pain much more than men can. And they will tend to just perceive the pain differently. They don't perceive it as pain. They perceive it as, as the pressure. They feel the pressure. And so that kind of, I, I feel like I'm suffocating. There's something wrong. I, I feel this kind of heaviness. That's when they should be calling, and that's how they should be describing it on the phone. Well, we only have time for one more symptom, uh, so I want to hit on strokes because the treatment of them, whether it's ischemic or whether it's from bleeding, is very different. Uh, can you tell us about that? Yeah, there are two types of, of strokes. In the, in the medical world, the vernacular for it is the wet stroke and the dry stroke. A dry stroke is the more treatable version, and that is very similar to uh, what happens in a heart attack. A blood clot will, will come and block an artery. When that happens in your heart, we call that a heart attack. When that happens in your brain, we call it a stroke. There are a few people out there that are trying to get the vernacular change to a uh, brain attack. Uh, I think that's the silliest thing I've ever heard. Uh, everybody knows it's a stroke. Let's call it a stroke. And what happens is that a, a clot, a piece of plaque, a blood clot, whatever the case is, some sort of plug lands in the arteries in your brain and blocks an area of the brain from getting blood flow. Worst case scenarios, it will block a large artery like a carotid artery and break down blood flow for an entire section of the brain. But usually they, they're not quite that big, so they will land in a, a smaller branch off of the carotid artery. They'll, they'll cut down blood flow to a large section of the brain that begins to die. Brain tissue needs to be replenished pretty constantly with oxygen and sugar. Those are the only two things that your brain runs on. Your brain doesn't have any alternative fuels. It only uses sugar. So it needs that blood flow and that constant blood flow. Within about four minutes of the lack of blood flow, brain tissue begins to become damaged, and they can actually see that on a CT, and the damage will spread over time to however large of an area that particular artery was feeding. We have learned, when I started in this business 20 years ago, we didn't do anything for strokes. When a stroke happened and we saw the signs of it, which are uh, weakness on one side, slurred speech, what we call facial droop, which looks like one side of your face looks like it's working correctly and the other side of your face looks like it's just hanging there. And in really bad cases, sometimes the pupils would be different sizes. When we saw those signs, we just kind of transported the patient to the hospital and really kind of felt bad for them because nothing was going to change unless they got lucky and it turned out to be one of those mini strokes that goes away. But for the most part, you weren't going to know that for 24 hours. Today, it's different. We can see it on a CT scanner. We can diagnose, I say we, but it's we, the healthcare providers. The physicians can diagnose off of what the CT scanner is showing them. If we know how long 
it's been since the onset of the signs and symptoms, then we can get you treated with a, a medication called TPA that actually, which stands for tissue plasminogen activase. It's this fancy word for a blood clot dissolver. So they give this medication that dissolves the blood clots and allows blood flow to start again. And if they get that in there in enough time, in the time window, nobody's quite sure what that time window is. So currently it's kind of fixed at about three hours. So if we can get in there in less than three hours and have that medication actually flowing, which means that gives us about an hour out in the field. So if you call us and say, you know, this started in the last 20 minutes, we can get you to the stroke center, they can get the team rolling, same as the, the heart attack team I was describing before, they have the same kinds of teams for these, get you down to the CT scanner where they can get a look to make sure that it is not the other kind of stroke. The other kind of stroke is what we call, we nickname the wet stroke. That means that a blood vessel in the brain has burst and there is actually bleeding going on. You would never want to give that person a medication that dissolves clots because that bleeding would then never stop, right? So that's one of the reasons for the CT scan. One of the reasons is to rule out the idea that this might be uh, a hemorrhagic stroke or what we call a wet stroke. So they go down, they get the CT scan, make sure that it's not bleeding in there, and then they can start the TPA, dissolve the clot, and see if we can fix the stroke symptoms. The bleeding type of strokes are still mostly supportive care right now. There's not a lot we can do for hemorrhagic strokes at this time. There's still more research going on into that, but we're we're quite a ways away from being able to fix those. So at this point, the what you called the ischemic strokes, or or what we call the dry strokes, which are the blood clots or the piece of plaque or whatever it is that's that's blocking blood flow, we can do something about those. But time is of the essence. So now we're back to seconds count. The the longer you go without treatment the more brain damage is there that is then irreversible. And it's just it's the same way with, with heart attacks. Heart attack folks have a mantra, and the mantra is time is muscle. The stroke people haven't really adopted it, but the same mantra for them would be time is brain matter. And it it really does make a difference waiting. So you want to call as soon as you recognize the signs or symptoms of a stroke. We're talking with Rod Brohard, who is the author of Life's Little Emergencies, a handbook for active, independent seniors and caregivers. Rod, uh, you drove ambulances and worked with firefighters for about 20 years, and then you went into teaching and administration. Yes, exactly. I, um, I'm a paramedic. I've been a paramedic for 20 years. And, you know, it's funny, uh, ambulance driver is a, it's really kind of a, sort of misnomer. It, it is something that most paramedics and emergency medical technicians don't like the term because the insinuation is that all we do is drive, but paramedics actually have a fairly extensive scope of practice, a similar uh, training program to what nurses do. It's just a different pathway, and they're a very autonomous group, so paramedics are actually acting 
in an autonomous way in your home. When they walk in the door, they see the signs and symptoms, they do the assessment, they make decisions on your care, all without direction from anyone else. So this is a group of people that are highly trained and and definitely bring something to your home when you when you dial us in. Most firefighters around the country are emergency medical technicians, which is the kind of the first step training process to become a paramedic. And then now there are paramedics in fire services around the country as well. So it's a good group of people that I work with, and they really do know their stuff. And one of the things that attracted me to life's little emergencies, I thought, gee, you know, if you go to a professor, <laughs> you can get very complicated, not necessarily down-to-earth answers, but if you really want to know, well, what do I do when, you guys are the uh, are where it happens. This is a group of people that's very get her done kind of crowd. You know, we we see this and we and we work to fix it. We're a task oriented, problem solving group, and that's the point of view that I was looking to try to get into life's little emergencies. I was trying to give folks definitive answers on what to do. I has I always hesitate to call it a first aid book because I I really you know I was glad that you focused a lot on the logistical side of the book at the beginning of the show because that's really that was what I was hoping to get out there for folks to know and to understand and the first aid sections that come toward the end of the book are there mostly as a way to help folks get through each individual problem and I tried to avoid the ubiquitous call the doctor advice that you get on Mm-hmm. every other first aid book out there. I I want to tell you if it's appropriate to call the doctor, to call the doctor. And I want to tell you when it's not appropriate. We talked about chest pain a little while ago. If you're having that chest pain, don't call the doctor. Don't go see the doctor. Call 911. That's what you need to do at this point. And I've tried it also to integrate the services that we all have. 911 is available in 100% of the country right now. So why don't we integrate that service into this book about emergencies? And that was the focus here, was to when when do you call? How do you get the help if you need it? When do you take a different pathway? And in some of the cases, when do you do it yourself? And so that information is in the book as well. There are times when the suggestion is, well, maybe you can handle this one on your own. And then if this doesn't work, then here here is how to escalate up the chain. And you did all those things very well. Thank you. The website is Rob Brohard, that's R-O-D-B-R-O-U-H-A-R-D.com, robbrohard.com. Rod, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it, Doctor. Commentary. Normally, I have quite a few comments to add, but this time I think the interview covered just about everything that comes to my mind. I would note that for strokes with obvious symptoms, the ratio of ischemic strokes to hemorrhagic strokes is almost 9 to 1. That's good news in that ischemic strokes are more treatable. Hopefully, research and technology will develop a way for paramedics to diagnose the type of stroke on site so clod-busting TPA can be administered on site for ischemic strokes. My apologies for using the term ambulance driver instead of paramedic and EMS professionals. My thanks to them for their service, 
and the risk they take in helping us. You are listening to Ageless Lifestyles on webtalkradio.net and permanently archived on agelesslifestyles.com. For information on my books, Defy Aging and 52 Baby Steps to Grow Young, my anti-aging hypnosis CDs, personal coaching, and my keynote and seminar services, just go to notaging.com or drbricky.com. I'd love to hear your comments and suggestions. Send them to radio at agelesslifestyles.com. This is your anti-aging psychologist, Dr. Michael Bricky, thanking you for joining us on our quest to live longer, healthier, and happier.